Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Embracing the suck, making sure I just don't quit, really trying to learn from what I was going through, even though it was massively uncomfortable. I think that is some of the best advice you can give. Just don't quit and learn from whatever the hell you're going through. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best Ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Travis Balcom. Travis is based in Waco, Texas. He's the president of Balcomi Capital, which buys and builds storage facilities across the United States. They currently have over 1,800 units, all self-storage, over 330,000 net rentable square feet at a valuation of over $30 million. Travis, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, for sure. My background is 10 years ago, or I guess 11 years ago, I bought my first house. Started with houses like the majority of real estate investors do. It was a HUD home. I didn't have a lot of money in the bank because I name dropped a few names here in Waco. I was able to get a pretty aggressive loan. So I would buy my first rental property. It was off to the races at that point. We ended up buying over 400 houses in five years. And then as many of the listeners know, I'm sure housing is a grind and in my opinion, you can make a lot more money through forced appreciation with commercial. And so I, I came to the revelation in 2018 that I needed to find a different vehicle to make money in. So we sold all the houses. It took about two years to really strategically to sell them. And then we started getting into storage. Gotcha. So you talked about the, the stressors and the lack of scalability and the single family homes. Why self-storage? Self-storage tends to be the boring, unsexy asset class. Well, it's starting to get a little bit more buzz now, but not a lot of people are posting about their 300-unit storage facility. Look at this metal building I bought in a rural America. It's not really as sexy as an apartment complex or a, buying a Starbucks and then going and getting a Starbucks at the Starbucks that is your tenant. Storage for our group, we love the really low-risk nature of the asset class. Primarily, our smallest facility, we're looking at 396 units we could lose 40 of those units to have 350 tenants. The operating costs on a storage facility is a lot lower than it is on apartments. Typically around 50, 60% of whatever you bring in is going to operating costs. Whereas storage, it can be as little as 21% if you have a big enough facility and you run it efficiently. 
finally maintenance, which is a make or break on all asset classes out there is almost non-existent. Occasionally we'll have a roll up door that needs to get a new spring, which costs 60 bucks or someone runs into a unit. But generally speaking, maintenance is just very, very minimal, primarily because you're only dealing with a few pieces of building material. You're dealing with steel, you're dealing with concrete, and you're dealing with gravel or some sort of concrete substrate to drive on. So both of those things are incredibly durable. That allows the insurance to be really low. It allows the maintenance to be non-existent. allows the operating expenses for the most part to be really low. Most of our facilities we run remotely. That's another benefit. You don't actually have to be there. We have cameras that we can look at the facility anytime we want. And we don't have to have any on site, which don't have to pay $45,000 to someone who wants to sit there and play computer games all day until you get a tenant walking in to sign a lease on. Gotcha. When did you first get into self-storage? We bought our first facility in 2021. We had been looking for about 18 months and hadn't really found anything that we wanted to buy. And then due to selling a lot of those houses I was referring to previously, we had a huge tax liability that we were going to have to pay like 137000 bucks. And I was like, man, I'm going to need to buy something. First, appreciate it and eliminate my tax liability. So on December 30th of 2021, we actually closed on our first facility. You know, I was 48 hours away from having to write a $137,000 check to the government. So we were specifically looking at storage, but at that moment, I was like, I'll buy anything for the most part, not to have anything cash flowing, to not have to pay that. You had a lot of incentive. Huge incentive. December 30th of 2021, we're recording in early 2023, which means in the last 18 months or so, you've scaled that portfolio to over 1,800 units. I said 30 million in assets under management. You said that number might be old. And you're working on an $18 million development right now that you were telling me about before the recording, right? Correct. Your numbers are accurate. We have grown pretty exponentially. Last year alone, we bought seven facilities. And then this year, Our goal is to buy or build a facility once a quarter, but the city and municipalities are really slow on those permits. One of the things we are doing is we're building a brand new extra space managed class A three-story climate control storage facility in Austin, Texas. We're just about to start the capital raise for that. Pretty excited about that. We should be digging dirt around May. That's a dream come true for me. That's just put myself up in a place I would never, ever, ever, ever would have thought I would be able to build something like that. In addition, as far as the 30 million, primarily reason we are so ambitious and aggressive is we really feel like multifamily space in 2012. Most of the multifamily was owned by mom and pop shops, 70, 80%. And now I'm sure Joe could confirm those numbers or anyone at the best ever podcast could confirm those numbers. But now most of them are corporate owned, meaning like a lot of the juice has been squeezed on the multifamily asset. I feel like the next asset for that to happen will be self-storage. So I think self-storage is kind of like in a 2012 space. It's just now getting buzzed as a safe, reliable, recession-resistant asset class. And we're going to see a run-up of a bunch of guys like me buying facilities and syndicating facilities and getting them where we're exiting them after doubling rents, after improving the facilities. And so I think in another 10 years, a lot of the juice is going to be squeezed in the self-storage space. And we're going to be looking at a lot more corporate ownership as opposed to mom and pops, that sort of thing. That makes a lot of sense with regards to reasoning behind your desire to scale quickly. I want to talk about that growth, the rate at which you have scaled your business, Travis. 
What would you say are the reasons why you've been able to scale in self-storage so quickly? We have a decade of experience of buying real estate. And not only do we have a decade of experience of buying real estate, but we have a decade of aggressively buying real estate. As I previously mentioned, we went from buying one house in 2012 to buying over 400 by 2018. So I have a very aggressive personality. If there's opportunity out there, I want all of the opportunity. I want to fully take advantage of that. I would say in addition to that, we have great limited partners. A lot of our limited partners have invested in every single one of our deals and some have shared with their friends, that sort of thing. So we've been able to get good traction on the hardest part of this business, in my opinion, which is capital raising. And in addition to that, banking relationships, we've not always batted a thousand but when we striking out on houses or we're striking out on things, we always made sure that our banks knew exactly where we were at, what our strategy was going to be to get out of it. And because of that, we have really, really strong relationships with banks. And then just from my history, I've got a great balance sheet. So I'm able to borrow a lot of money. So when you add borrowing money and being aggressive and being able to find the capital, the last thing, finding a deal, it allows you to really aggressively grow. You said there have been some deals that you've struck out on. Have any of those been self-storage deals? They haven't. We're actually really good in the self-storage space. The deals that went wrong for us were things that were outside of our avatar of average purchasing. So like back in the house days, if our average purchase was 100000 and put fifty grand in to sell for two hundred, the ones that we lost money on or the ones that we ended up getting sandwiched on would be pay three hundred grand, put 400 grand into it, hoping to sell for a million and we sell for 615, you know, and so we just lose our, our shirts so bad. So that was my fifth deal ever, actually, the one I was just telling you about. And then we actually did buy an apartment complex. It was a 20 unit apartment complex. So you got a really good deal on it. $6,500 a door. I was bragging to all my friends about how I made one of the best purchases ever. And lo and behold, nine months after that, we kind of realized why. There's a lot of small businesses going on in that 20-unit apartment complex. There's a lot of rough stuff. I think the energy didn't really escalate till about 3 a.m. every night after a good amount of illicit drugs were used and alcohol was consumed. But we couldn't get good people in, so all we had was druggies and homeless people and prostitutes. It was just a disaster. That's also one of the reasons why I'm not into the multifamily space is just, I don't want to deal with that type of human ever again. And being in the single family rental space, being in the small apartment building owning space, I never really felt fulfilled. Even when we were making money, which wasn't that often on the rental side of things, I never really felt like I'm doing a good thing for the world. And I feel like with storage, the human element is, for the most part is eliminated. We're just an extra closet for somebody our facility in Oklahoma City that we have, we're just a place for you to put your boat and a place to put your RV. And I just love that so much more because you're not having to deal with people's life. I remember getting a call at 7 a.m. My first duplex, my third property to buy was a duplex. And the people that live behind called me at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. I called. I thought the house was on fire. And they were just having a marital dispute and wanted my opinion on it. And I'm like, don't ever call me again. Just pay your rent. I'm not your therapist. Don't ever call me again. You know, it was just a disaster. And so eight years of that, you're just like, I got to get out of that. And so that's why we went to storage because it seems like I had to find something that had a very low level of failure at for the most part so that I could learn, I could get really good at it and take off on it. But podcast isn't long enough to tell all the failures, but the one about the purchase for 300 grand, put 400 grand into it, hoping to sell for a million. 
but end up selling it for 615000 That was the most painful one, I think. I think there was a $228,000 loss on that. And so another reason, if you look at that, the houses, those are all speculative. Like I'm hoping to sell something in the future for more money. Whereas storage, every month we bring this money in. Sometimes it might go down, it might go up, but every month we can at least count on this. And so it's more of owning a business where I generally think house flipping is the most dangerous thing you can do as a real estate investor. It helps you get a little bit of money, but once you get a little bit of money, you really, really need to move on to something other than owning houses or flipping houses, in my opinion. We'll get back to the show with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. Transitioning the conversation back to your self-storage investing. Travis, there are a few questions I want to ask, but I think where I want to start is what do you think are the most important components to the due diligence process when you're looking at either buying an existing facility or when you're looking at land that could be developed into storage? Another way to ask that question is maybe not in your own experience, but where do you see the most mistakes made or where do you see mistakes being the most costly in due diligence? That is a great question. People don't need self-storage. They need to live in a house. They don't need to store their stuff. They can put it in the garage. They can throw it away. They can give it to someone else. They can try to sell it at a garage sale. They don't need to store it. But for some reason, Americans hate throwing stuff away. So self-storage industry is really big in America. And so in that thread, basically the storage market, when you're looking at a piece of land or an existing facility, you want to see who are the competitors and how full are those competitors. So if you do a three to five mile radius search, Extra Space says that they pull most of their tenants through a four mile radius of where their facility is. So if their facility is here, they're basically taking tenants from four miles away on a radius of that. So you want to pull a four mile radius search of all the storage facilities in that area and then all the population in that area as well. So you get your population and then you get your storage facilities. You want to secret shop those. So you call them and say, hey, Slocum, this is Travis. I'm flipping a house down the street. I need seven 10 by 10s to put my building materials in. Can you help me with that? And if your response is, oh, yeah, we have plenty of storage for here. Just come on down. We'll figure something out for you. So that'll be one of the responses. Or the second response will be like, oh, man, seven? Uh, you can tell it's kind of stressing them out. And they're like, all we got right now is a five by 10. And you're like, okay, all right, well, I'll call someone else. Thank you so much. And, and typically those managers, if they're really well trained, they'll try to get you that five by 10. They're not sweet little grandmas just hanging out in those rooms. <laughs> they're really good at helping people. So one thing you learned is if, it, if all they have is a five by 10 is that they're completely full. And so there's probably enough demand for more units. And if you call the other seven facilities or whatever in that area, 
And those are also full, or maybe you get on their website and they, you see that they're full because their units available or like, it, you know, if it says 10 by 10 and it says waiting list, five by 10 waiting list, then you know that there's probably some good opportunity. Another way you could do that is hire a third party feasibility lady. And typically a lot of banks require that. That's what we do is we think we find a pretty good property. Then we'll hire a third party consultant to go for like 7,500 bucks to go in there and make sure that what we found is the same thing they're finding. The person we use has 35 years of experience with storage. I'm 37. So she has been doing this since I was born, basically. So she knows more than I do about it. She's seen the trends. She's seen what happens, that sort of thing. She knows how to move things around and really pull the data correctly. So that's one of the best things to do. Outside of that, if you're building, you really need a big square of land. We've attempted and we're doing it, but it's a lot more expensive than you otherwise would. But you can get a big square. You can get your building costs could be a lot less than if you have a long, narrow piece of land. So that'll get you pretty far. That'll get you a lot further than just wondering, scratching your head on if you have a good deal. Another thing is on the subject property, you want to look to make sure it has somewhere around 90% occupancy or more. If it has like 94, 95, you know that you can probably raise rates without losing a lot of tenants. If you lose a little bit of tenants, you're still going to be at that 85% occupancy mark, which is basically, I know in apartments or in multifamily, 90 to 92% is considered stabilized. Well, in storage, 85% is considered a stabilized. So if they're above 85%, generally speaking, you can raise rents. If they're below that, we're increasing marketing to get that up to that 90% so that we can raise rents, that sort of thing. Travis, in the properties you're considering purchasing or in the markets that you're looking to break into, how much of a factor do you place on the possibility of new construction coming in and disrupting the supply and demand balance in that area? Yeah, that's a tough one. There's a lot of storage being built right now. It really depends. So when we're purchasing land to build a storage facility, what we're really looking for outside of those metrics I was just hinting at is we're really looking at how difficult is it to build that storage facility from a planning and zoning standpoint. So since I'm so close to Travis County and Williamson County or Austin, Texas, and our new facility is going in is in Georgetown, Texas. Georgetown is an incredibly challenging market to build anything storage related because one, City planners, they don't want storage. It doesn't really provide employment. Historically, it's kind of ugly. So we look for those that you have to get a special use permit. We look for those that's going to take a little bit to get the planning and zoning done, like a little bit, meaning like 18 months or two years. The reason why is if we go through the slog of getting that property entitled and permitted and ready to build, I know that there is a lot better of a chance that no one else is going to freaking go through the two years of hell that I go through to get that thing built. So it's kind of an insurance policy. We're like, man, this is kind of nice. We can actually probably bank on the fact that there's not going to be another facility just open right down the street from us. So that's one way we do it. In some of the smaller rural areas, what I've learned is that was a huge fear of mine. But what I've learned is the people that are very practical and they're not as ambitious, they're just kind of like, hey, we're going to do what we do and we're going to continue to do it. There's a city in Texas where I own five of the six facilities and the other owner had lunch with him. We were talking about another gentleman who was thinking about putting storage up and this 86-year-old man, he goes, I just don't understand why he would do that because I don't think the city can handle any more storage. And he never built it, but generally speaking, it's just kind of a risk you take. But with that said, that's why underwriting it really well. 
purchasing it, being aggressive on your rents and then staving off future rents is really important. So if you take a facility and let's say it's $40 for a 10 by 10 and you slowly over a year, get it to 65 to 70, which is totally doable. We've done that several times. Two things have happened. One, we've increased the value quite a bit by doing that because the net operating income, it's not like we had operating expenses on top of that. That's just all net operating income. And then two, if we have to lowball and really drop our rates, we have a good amount of bandwidth to do that, to take out the competition or to stave off the tenants leaving, that sort of thing. But yeah, that is definitely a risk. It's not as practical of a risk as most people would think. It's never rent. We've never had any issue. Generally speaking, if you buy a storage facility in a population that's growing in populace, meaning the population increases every year, you're going to find yourself with plenty of tenants to put in those facilities. Nationwide, I think the historic four-year default rate is under 3%, I think. And it, I know during 2008, it was 1.96%. So it's super low. So most of these end up working out, basically. It's a good way to think about it. That makes a lot of sense. Travis, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. What is the best ever book you recently read? The best book I, that anyone should read is a book called Margin of Safety. It's not in print anymore. You can find it on Amazon for 1200 to 1400 bucks because it's that valuable of a book. Most investment bankers have read it. They know about it. But outside of the investment banking world, most haven't. But the reason why it's super important that I think every real estate investor should read the first two parts. The third part is incredibly confusing. It's all about derivatives and real estate investors don't know how to deal with. But the reason why I think part one and part two is really great and everyone should read it is because it talks about Everyone can get excited about buying an asset or buying an investment or investing into a, an investment, but people rarely, rarely think, what is the downside? What if this thing goes bad? Will I lose everything? And if you structure your investments with that premise, meaning if all of my expectations don't work, will I still be able to get my cash back? You're going to be so much further along in a 10-year trajectory than someone who's, I'm just going to throw it, maybe make 30%, maybe lose 30%. And... I think that's super important because real estate investors are visionaries. There's very few of us who are actually integrators. Most of us go, man, we can take that piece of crap house, fix it up, put a new roof on it, make it look real pretty, and then list on the MLS and make 30, 40 grand. Most of us don't look at it and go, okay, well, I could also lose a bunch because there's a homeless encampment across the street. You know, it's like, and so that that would be a book I'd recommend everyone reading. That it's one of my favorite books. That as I get older. I'll make sure my son reads and my daughters read. And that's by Seth Klarman? It is by Seth Klarman, who does not want to republish it. According to Wikipedia, he's worth $15 billion. So you can take the advice of someone who's worth $15 billion. The the way I've downloaded it is you have to get on Etsy.com, and there's a $9.99 version. It's digital. And then I had UPS store bind it, and that's how I read it. Wow. Unfortunately, we have to expedite the best ever lightning round. Travis, what is your best ever advice? To never give up, really. I think there's plenty of times in my career where I could have given up and just went and worked for 75 grand a year, 100 grand a year. Probably been happy, but I'm so glad I didn't. When things are super challenging in my life, just sticking with it, embracing the suck, making sure I just don't quit, really trying to learn from what I was going through, even though it was massively uncomfortable. I think that is some of the best advice you can give. Just don't quit and learn from whatever the hell you're going through. Last question. Where can people get in touch with you? And there's two places you can go. You can go to Invest with Travis if you're interested in passively investing with Balcomi Capital. 
if you're looking to go from house flipping to investing in commercial space, you can go to housetheempire.com. Awesome. Those links are in the show notes. Travis, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend that you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.